Hey, it's Max, and before we start the show, I want to tell you about a new sponsor we've got on the program. It's a sponsor that if you're a regular reader of longform.org, you're going to be very familiar with. It's the London Review of Books. The London Review of Books is Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, and it's so much more. We have recommended dozens and dozens and dozens of articles from the LRB over the years on longform.org. The stuff is great. They've got incredible writers that go into subjects that are both fascinating and really unique. There are stories in the London Review of Books that you simply won't find anywhere else. You can save 77% off the cost of a subscription right now to the London Review of Books. That's six issues for just six pounds, which is a little over eight bucks. All you have to do is go to lrb.me slash longform. That's lrb.me slash longform to get 77% off the cost of a subscription. Okay, here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-host, Max Linsky. I'm on vacation. I'm in a Hawaiian shirt, and I'm talking in a gaming headset. Hi, Max. <laughs> I don't know where Evan is. Evan's also on vacation. We're letting him actually be on vacation, and I made you do this even though you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a gaming headset. Uh, this week, I talked to Robert McKee. Um, Robert McKee is probably best known for his book, Story, which uh, if you've ever hung out with an aspiring screenwriter, they probably own it. Uh, he has a new book out uh, called Character. Character is about how to write characters, whether they're real people or fictional people or blends uh anyone who's not really there bringing them to the life on the page or in the screenplay uh i thought it'd be a good jumping off point uh to bring him into the uh, long form podcast universe because he's someone i've always wanted to talk to and uh, i will just say he did not disappoint at all <laughs> yeah aaron aaron is very excited about this one he has told me about it multiple times it sounds like uh sounds like robert mckee good hang Excellent hang, Robert McKee. Um, we are brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. They make it easy to send an email newsletter, and we thank them. And now here's Aaron with Robert McKee. Welcome, Robert McKee. Hi, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I, I've been reading your new book, Character, after I think I read your book story when I was in college and uh, it's still in my brain, but I took particular interest in, in your new book character because um, this show is traditionally uh, nonfiction focused. And a few times I've referred to people in nonfiction articles as characters yeah. and uh, caught black from people and sort of something you address in the book that when we look at say, um, like a, a famous historical figure, you're actually looking at a bunch of people's non-fictional depiction of that character. So when you pick up the newspaper, like, do you read non-fictional news as stories the same way you would read a, a movie or a TV as a story? No, not in a newspaper necessarily, because that's so immediate and uh, it doesn't get to the the, have that quality of, of fictionalization yet, but it's the natural thing for the mind uh, to interpret reality as if it were fiction in a sense, or to give it story structure. Now, years and years ago, back in the 80s and 90s, when 
psychologists were first trying to figure out how the mind works, how thought works, and how memory works, how consciousness works. They, they came finally to the realization that the mind storifies its own experiences. The mind is a story-making machine, a story-taking-in machine, and it converts reality uh, to story form, and it stores it in memory in exactly the same part of the brain where it stores all the fictional experiences it has. And so every, you know, every novel you've ever read, every film you've ever seen, plus all the experiences of your life have all gone to the same location in your brain where that story form embeds them. And this is why often things that actually happen to you seem like a story and why stories you've experienced over life seem real because they, they end up in the same compartment in your head. Um, a great critic once, uh, Kenneth Burke, said, uh, stories are equipment for living. And that would apply equally to nonfiction as much as fiction. So let's talk a, a little bit about that, the brain as sort of a recorder of stories. Um, your book talks about the difference between people who sort of see story from plot-driven to character-driven and, and sort of the history of what goes into those ideas. When you're in a real-life experience and you are thinking about capturing it for future use in fiction, what are the details about character that, that you think are relevant? And, and what sensitivity does one need to understand? Like, I've heard a lot of people on the show will talk about, you know, the surroundings, the scene, but very few people have talked about capturing, like, what was happening in people's heads in real time and thinking through that when going through, like, a real-life memory. Well, I, for one, I'm always reacting and, and, and responding to the real moment, of course, what they're saying and doing. But I have, and ever since I was a child, I mean, I've always done this. I've, I've had a knack of uh, a tendency to, to look past their eyes and um, try to ferret out what they're really thinking and feeling because I'm aware that whatever they're saying and doing at this moment is a tactic in order to get what they want. And no one, you know, it's, 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 it's impossible for human beings to say out loud what they're deeply thinking and feeling for the obvious reason, 90% of what they're really thinking and feeling is subconscious. And so they can't say it or do it even if they wanted to. And so, um, so when anytime you're in a conversation with anybody, there's a constant uh, action, reaction, action, reaction, tactic, adjustment, tactic, adjustment. And when I'm in conversation with, with others, I'm always aware or sensitive at least to what they're really thinking and feeling. And uh, writers must have that. They can't possibly create excellent nonfiction or fiction if they're not aware of what is going on inside of other people, really, even subconsciously, while they go about saying whatever they do consciously in the world. Because if you just recorded the surface, if you were just paying attention to the surface, you'd be missing the whole show. 
<laughs> so, uh, and then after the event, you think about it and you go back and you remember what was said or done or you think about what it was. And that gives you an even deeper perception of what that person was really doing. And then if that experience comes with a, with a strong positive or negative charge, this is what you remember. 99.99% of all your, your experience in life is immediately forgotten. Uh, it never gets recorded because it has no value charge. It's neither positive nor negative. It's just ordinary. It's every day. It's neutral. What the memory is looking for uh, as equipment for living are those experiences that are either threatening to your life or supportive of your life. Uh, that are positive versus negative because that attunement to the positive, negative, positive, negative is what's going to equip you to, um, to survive. Uh, and so, but you can't really know what's positive or negative if you're not aware of what's going on inside of other people. And so um, that's what writers do. So to rewind your own life, when did you kind of realize that you had this sensibility and that potentially thinking about things like people's motivation um, was something that you wanted to do with your own life? Did you have writerly ambitions as a young person? Yeah, but I was really bad at it. Huh. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. When I was six, I don't know, five, six, my father invented a unique form of punishment. When I did something wrong, he had this gorgeous uh, volume of Aesop's fables with these magnificent color plates. And he would have me copy out Aesop's fable plus the moral at the bottom in good penmanship and then I would have to come to him in the living room and explain the fable to him and give him my interpretation of the moral. Not just repeat the moral, but my interpretation of what the story meant. Uh, and when I did it, my father's eyes would light up because he was, I was impressing him. And, um, and I, you know, to impress your father is really, significant um, and so I've been I've been doing I've been looking at the subtext or the meaning of stories since I was like six years old by chance and so I, um, it's just it's the thing I've done all my life in trying to get people to understand like what the subtext of stories and stories from their own lives are like if you were trying to get someone to understand the subtext of, say, their own motivations or why they did something, and they themselves didn't fully understand it, what are the kinds of questions you ask that sort of dig out the why from, I think a lot of people go through life kind of thinking that they just make choices willy-nilly or it just happens. Yeah. Well... When I was directing in the theater, I had uh, a couple actors who had memorized their performance and were stuck in that performance. And they were just mechanically doing it over and over again because they were not listening to each other. 
they were not listening. I mean, when, when people in life, when two people are talking, if they're really listening to each other, they are subconsciously, if not consciously, attuned to the subtext of the other person. That's what it means to listen to someone. You hear their words and you sense the meaning behind it. So what I would do for those actors, I'd say, okay, here's, here's, this, here's the exercise. She's going to say X, Y, Z to you. And you, before you can say your next line, you have to tell her what she meant by that. And then you have to get her to agree that that is, in fact, what she meant by that. And until you can tell her what she meant and get her to agree that it is what she meant, you can't say your next line. Which means, for God's sakes, listen. And it was, it was amazing to watch those exercises. If I were to advise people on, you know, how do you get attuned to the subtext in yourself and your subtext in other people, when you're in conversation with someone important in your life, you know, every once in a while you say, do you mean X, Y, Z? Or are you feeling whatever? And, um, and see if you can get them to agree that your interpretation of what's really going on in them is accurate. If you do that back and forth with somebody you really care about and you, you say, you know, I, I, if you, go, if you go to somebody important in your life and you say, you know, I don't think we communicate. I've heard that since I was, you know, we all have communication problems. I don't think we communicate. And if they say, yeah, we don't communicate very well, then that's the exercise. You say, okay, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And she says whatever she says. And you say, before you say a word, you say, uh, what you really feel is what you really think is and get her to agree with that. When you're saying that, she will come to realize that what she just said created a false impression because you're struggling to explain the meaning behind it. And she'll realize that her action wasn't really what she meant. Um, so that, you know, that's tedious, <laughs> I'll tell you. But it is a way to get people to... Uh, to tune into the inner life of another human being by instead of jumping on your first reaction to what they say, to sit back and think what do they really mean by that and ask them if that's what they really mean and see what they say. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for a second. Tell you a little bit more about our new sponsor, the London Review of Books. The London Review of Books offers unrivaled coverage, not just of literature and politics, but also art, history, science, culture. It's Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, and they provide space for some of the world's best writers to explore their subjects in absorbing and exhilarating detail. It's not just absorbing, though, and it's not just exhilarating. It's definitive. There's this thing about the great LRB pieces, and we've recommended dozens over the years where they just feel totally unique and totally definitive. Some recent ones that come to mind, James Meek on wind turbines. Joanne O'Leary wrote this incredible piece on Emily Dickinson. The LRB is just relentlessly great. 
And right now, you can save 77% of the cost of a subscription. You'll get six issues for just six pounds. That's a little over $8. All you have to do is go to lrb.me slash longform. That's lrb.me slash longform to get 77% off the cost of a subscription. Thanks to the LRB for sponsoring the show. We've been big fans for a long time. talk in your book about being sort of agnostic to the application of these ideas in TV or movies, you know, it's not necessarily like a prescription for like a a very specific form of writing. I'm interested in while these ancient constants stay in place as media and types of media change. uh, When you were starting the movie was probably king. I would say now the TV series, the showrunner is ascendant. And we also have different forms of media like uh, the podcast uh, miniseries, as well as a lot of reality based mediums now. Do you notice that as a teacher? Does the, the media format matter to you? It matters greatly in this sense because uh, I remember at the millennium, I was um, staring out a window one day wondering where would storytelling go in the 21st century? Hadn't we exhausted the art form? The explosion of art in the 20th century, uh, especially just all the possible forms had been done. And now what we're left with is recombinations of things. So I looked at story in the same way, you know, we, we, we the anti-structure, the anti-novel, the anti-play, theater of the absurd, all that postmodern uh, stuff had exhausted the art form. Randomness rather than causality, etc., cetera, uh, had all been explored. And I thought, well, what's left, where we could go, is to the dark side. You know, the greatest of writers have been, you know, since, since Sophocles, have been exploring the dark side of life and the great tragedians and Shakespeare, Ibsen and all the rest, O'Neill, and explored it. But that dark side is bottomless. And it's what people don't want to look at because it's a, it's a truth and it's painful. So I thought in the 21st century, there could be an exploration of all the ramifications of of the dark side of human nature. And to do so is going to take time. A two-hour feature film, when you think about it, is actually a, a kind of miniature. The most complex characters in films are typically one, two, or three dimensional, and that's it, because you've only got two hours and you've only got a limited number of relationships between characters. And so the the possibility of exploring human nature in a film is limited to just two hours and a cast of, you know, four, five, six people. But then came long form. Now it's not two hours. You've got a hundred hours. And you've got seasons year after year after year to take these, these casts of these characters and uh, put them in relationships of an enormous number. Uh, and so long form has created 
characters that are absolutely stupendous in their complexity. And so I analyzed Tony Soprano and then uh, in Breaking Bad, Walter White. And Tony Soprano is a 12-dimensional character. Walter White, I worked out, is a 16-dimensional character. Not three, 16. And that kind of complexity of, of human nature has always been there, but we've never had the time to develop a character and to explore and, and, and express all of that complexity. Uh, and so I thought the future for storytelling is just grand. So while earlier we were maybe talking about motivation in the moment, motivation in a scene, now we're starting to talk about like, the motivations that drive people's whole life. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, thinking about like not just understanding why someone does something in a moment, but sort of understanding the whole directionality uh, of a character's uh, existence. Well, in order to, to hold interest season after season, you have to do one of two things or both. What makes people follow a television series season after season is one, characters are being revealed in ways that they never saw before. The characters are being put in situations that they never met before and aspects of their nature are, are being revealed, the depths to which they can uh, be a caring, compassionate human being, the depths to which they can be a destructive human being, all of that can be revealed year after year after year. And as long as principal characters are being revealed, we're fascinated. And the second thing is that characters are changing. They're arcing. They're not the same person at the end of season one they were at the beginning of season one. And season after season, they're changing for better or worse uh, somehow. And we're curious just to see who are they going to become in time. And so those, as, as long as those revelations and changes are taking place within the story, we're interested. When characters become repetitive, when the same person, episode after episode, when nothing is revealed, when nothing is changed, uh, we lose interest. And so that is going to force writers to think in terms of complexity, in terms of depth and change. They've never had to think before. And so they're going to develop characters of, of qualities and richnesses we've never developed before. Can we turn a, a similar lens uh, on your own life over the last few decades? When did you start writing about writing? Well, what happened was um, in my 30s, I went back to school to do a PhD. I got all the coursework done and the exams done, and I had to pick a dissertation topic. And I thought, um, I think I'll study the art of story because someday I may want to um, write fiction. I had tried writing fiction in my 20s when I was an undergrad, and it was really immature. And I could see that because I 
directed enough mature writing to know what immature writing was. And, uh, but there was nothing I could do about that because I was immature. And uh, so I just put it aside. But then I thought, well, someday I may want to go back to writing fiction. And it would be good to prepare myself for that if I took some time to study the, the art. And so I did. I, I started a dissertation that I never finished. And so I've been taking notes, writing on, on writing, on storytelling since my mid-30s. So what is that? That's 45 years ago. I'm 80 now. Something that has come up a lot on the show and I think is maybe one of the more difficult things to pin down is what's a good story? A lot of the advice about writing is sort of nuts and bolts. It's about how you do it. It's about the process. But how do you tell people like this is a story worth telling versus this is not? That's impossible to declare. You say this is a story worth telling. It hasn't been told yet. And so, I mean, any human subject, human beings and their relationships and them with themselves and with other people is material, endless material. And so um, I've had, for example, I've had <laughs> people come up to me and like say, Mr. McKee, I've got a great story. Uh, I know, what is it? He said, did, did you know that if the moon shifted out of orbit by just 10 miles, the effects on the tides of the, of the oceans and the crust of the earth would be so great it would cause floods and volcanoes and whatnot. And I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, yeah. I said, so what's your story? He said, well, that's it. I said, that's, that's not a story. <laughs> That's subject matter. It's another, you know, it's another way to cause, you know, end civilization as we know it today. And so when people say they've got a story, what they've got is material. They've got characters, they've got a setting, they've got, I would hope, desire. These characters want something. They've got forces in their lives from whatever angle that are blocking them, thwarting them from getting what they want. And every possible thought like that has potential, certainly because we're dealing with human beings, has potential to become a wonderful story. But then it has to be told. And somebody wants to be a novelist, I mean, you know, Herman Melville, uh, when he was young, read every novelist he could get his hands on in that day. And he would read the good the stories over and over and over again, 10, 20, 30, 40 times, staring at the page, asking himself, how did this writer achieve that effect? Why did he compose the sentence that way? Why did this writer do the things they did? And how did that affect me? And they taught themselves the form by reading and rereading and reading and rereading other writers until the form sort of emerged out of all that study. There's this, you know, this romantic myth that has been with us for a hundred years that somehow writers just uh, give birth spontaneously, that somehow the muse just descends into their mind and takes over their hand and they just start writing and typing and it's all just going to flow out of them because they're so brilliant, so talented. Um, and, uh, and that, of course, is absurd. 
anybody who's ever written, anybody's ever gotten a, a, a fine writer to talk about their process, the famous expression that writing is rewriting becomes clearer and clearer. So I can do what I can to help people get there faster, but um, they still need to do the work. And the good ones do. The good ones do, of course. What is your opinion of stories that are based on reality? Let's even just say like fictional films. Like, What does it change when the story has some basis in real people and real events? Well, you can get away with murder in a way. You know, if it's a biography or even autobiography, not everything has to make the same kind of sense that it would in fiction because the writer can say, well, it actually happened that way. I know it doesn't make sense, but it actually happened that way. And and, uh, and so in that sense, you can get away with the holes, gaps in logic, you know, because people are so erratic and, and coincidence is such that, that things happen that, in a well-told story, they wouldn't. So there's that. There's that. You don't have to have the kind of logical rigor of cause and effect that a fiction writer would. The other is that you still have to look at the so-called real-life story. I mean, that word real is suspicious immediately. Uh, I mean, what the hell is real? And every belief that human beings have is an interpretation of reality. So when you start with something that you know that's actuality that actually happened, the first thing the writer has to decide is what genre is this? You know, is it a crime story? Is it a love story? Is it a family drama? Is it a war story? A social drama about problems in society, the need curing, and on it goes. And that's an interpretation that the writer, the nonfiction storyteller has to make because that reality has infinite possibilities. You have to choose, you have to make choices. Do I emphasize the inner struggles in this character, their personal relationships, family, friends, lovers, their social conflicts with the institutions in society, their physical conflicts with the environment in some fashion, or some combination of all those levels and which is the most important, which is not, and so forth. Well, first of all, I have to ask, what does this character want, really want out of life? And so that's an interpretation of real life people. You have to interpret them as if they're characters. And so nonfiction is fiction. (laughs) To one degree or another, all stories are fiction. Like you talk about the story has to work. Yeah. Does reality work? Like, do the natural orientation of facts sort of lend themselves to working? It doesn't matter if it works for you as the writer. It matters only if it works for the audience or the reader. That right? Your your feelings are irrelevant at some point. So the most important choice, as I said, you have to make is genre. And the most important aspect of choosing the genre is what level of conflict is the focus of this story? Or another way of putting that is to ask the question, what changes? So when I'm working with uh, writers who are struggling, they have materials. And in that material, you have to make choices as to what to use, tell the story at what level, 
what qualities of conflict. You have to make all these choices. And that's very difficult for people often because they often think, especially when they're dealing with real life material, that it's all important. Everything is important. Everything is important at the same level in the same way. It's all important. And so they stuff it full of everything, right? And they don't make choices. So I have to, you know, give them some guidance as to what kind of choice. Try to give some guidance and focus. But those choices are the artists, not mine. Robert, thank you so much for this interview. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk. And a pleasure with you, Aaron. Thank you for those excellent questions and uh, great. Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to Robert McKee. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Seth Kelly. Thanks to our intern, Susan Peterson. And of course, thanks to MailChimp, who makes this show possible. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.